0: Welcome to Behind the Paranormal, with Paul and Ben Eno. Could there really and truly be vampires? Where could such an outlandish idea even come from? Can music influence paranormal events?
1: Hello and welcome to the 918th edition of Behind the Paranormal, with Paul and Ben Eno. Coming to you from W O O N AM and FM radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app, from TalkStream Live, on YouTube, and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, that was Paul, and today we are bringing you a combination show with some pretty weird subjects. So feel free to call in today, especially if you have questions about vampires and weird music. Uh, The number is 401-766-1240, that's from anywhere, or you can email paul at behindtheparanormal.com.
0: Well, uh, trick-or-treat, everybody, this is the first time since 2011 our show has uh fallen on actual Halloween Day. So uh, our scheduled guest was Alexander Petikoff, who uh, through no uh, control of his own uh, had a conference he was speaking at extended to an extra day, so he could not be with us, although he will try to call in a little bit later. So <clears throat> during the pain, everybody asks us, what have we done lately? Well, uh obviously we kinda had our wings clipped during a pandemic as everybody did. And uh I myself was was doing a lot of research on the vampire traditions and beliefs. Because as you know, many times we've said on the show, anything from folklore is there because something happened in the human experience that imprinted itself upon the human psyche somehow. And uh, beliefs uh, grew up around that, and baggage was taken on things of this kind. So the vampire, hmm, people who supposedly live by by, uh, feeding upon the blood of other people or other creatures, anyway, hmm. Uh, There are traditions about this sort of thing all over the world, in the Orient, the Middle East, Greece, Rome. And folklore, as we've often said, is the vessel of the memory of the human race, it's based on something profound, as I say, that happened in the human experience, imprinted, and uh, we put labels on it that we can understand, whereas the actual reality might be far deeper or weirder or different, at least, from the labels. Now, one of the quotes, and I believe Bram Stoker, Abraham Stoker, the author of Dracula, who's going to come up several times in this uh, uh, monologue, because he had a local connection, really, in Rhode Island here, mm. Deuteronomy 12, the uh, Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, says the blood is the life. The blood is the life. There seems to be a real notion of that throughout human culture, that the blood is is the life. But obviously, if you bleed to death, you're not going to be alive. But um, what is the context of that quote? Uh, it's essentially that the actual quote in, in, the, in its entirety is, be sure you do not eat the blood because the blood is the life, and you must not eat the life with the meat. These are dietary guidelines that were set in the Old Testament. There are are a lot of very specific dietary guidelines set uh, in Leviticus, but especially Deuteronomy. Now, the Old Testament, again, uh, contains not just um, Israelite beliefs, the ancient Hebrews, but beliefs that were shared with their Sumerian and Babylonian predecessors, and a lot of the people in the area at the time, like the Canaanites. This seemed to be good advice on health. For example, uh, the, the, the uh, proscrip- proscription against eating pork uh, prevented trichinosis, and among other things. It was very difficult to maintain the purity of meat in those days, particularly with pigs. So there seemed to be good practical reasons for some of this, but this idea of the blood is the life seems to uh, range behind a lot of the vampire legends that later came about. Uh, but they weren't uh, new uh, in the 18th or 19th centuries. There was a notion. The Sumerians had a notion, and my ancient Sumerian is a little rusty. But it's akhakaru is ghost, or break it down etymologically from what I remember, and it's more like life-sucking ghost. Uh, that sounds like the parasites we often talk about. The so you know the, the quote-unquote demons. But it also, uh, would set the stage for a belief in something like a, a physical vampire. There was, uh, it's interesting that, that uh, the devil is always portrayed uh, in popular art with horns. But, uh, the god Nergal, uh, from the Middle East, Sumerian god, uh, sometimes was described as a warrior, other times described as a dragon, but always described as having horns. But again, that was very, very common, if not universal among, uh, Middle Eastern gods. Now, being an underworld god, Nergal had some bird-like characteristics. Now, that's very interesting from the point of view of my 1974 Bridgeport poltergeist case with Ed and Lorraine Warren, when I had a physical confrontation with something that felt bird-like. I could actually feel the, 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 the uh, physical characteristics of this thing which wasn't supposed to have physical characteristics because to us it was a demon which by definition is a spirit with no body. Well, that was not the case here and we've talked about that on many other shows and and in uh, our uh, 2016 book, uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, there's the full account of that case. And uh, the uh, Middle Eastern god, particularly Nergal, would have claws, uh, again, sometimes uh, described as a dragon who drinks the blood of the living. Elsewhere in the text, he is said to be offered secret blood rituals. Now, somehow, apparently that came down and was translated into East European tradition of vampire ghosts inhabiting bodies and preying on the family members for blood. Now, we all know the vampire legend from... You know, Dracula or, or, you know, you know, and so we're not saying that, uh, the son of Dracula is running around looking for the daughter of Frankenstein right now mm-hmm. out there somewhere.
1: I'd like to point out. Sure. That it's, uh, I think, I think we as good old modern, um, uh, materialists like to, to look at, at ancient histories such as these and think, we, we almost view it as that, as none of these cultures had contact with anybody else. And that all of their stuff is just separate from everybody else, and they just didn't—they didn't mix, they didn't talk to anybody. They're just like, okay, well, the Mesopotamians believe this, you know, the Hebrews believe this, done. But yet, there's all sorts of um, historical accounts of all these cultures interacting mm-hmm. and taking each other's ideas and being like, well, this is what what we think this is, and and interpreting, i.e., you know, ball ball worshippers and whatnot, where they pop up in scripture but also the Ugaritic tablets that were discovered within the last couple, you know, decades and all this other stuff and it's you know it shows interactions between all these cultures and it's it's something really important to to point out that everybody interacted with everybody else so all these ideas were shared and changed over time
0: right so uh, fast forward, as we say, to uh, 1892, or actually the, maybe about the time of the American Revolution. Mm. And one looks back in the history of New England here, and particularly Rhode Island and Connecticut, uh, in our listening area, and we have uh, some very bizarre experiences uh, having to do with vampire beliefs. Now, everybody knows about the witchcraft hysteria of the 1640s in Connecticut. Well, maybe they don't know about that one, but they know about the one in uh, Cape Ann, Massachusetts, uh, Salem and Danvers in the 1690s, and uh, everybody thinks of that. But there was a vampire hysteria. People believed people actually had been vampires, and very much in in that ancient tradition of people having their bodies, uh, after they died, inhabited by ghosts, would raise them from the grave to feed upon the um, the blood of their relatives. Now they wouldn't just lie and wait by the side of the road and attack uh, slow drivers. I mean they would, uh, according to the beliefs, they would um, uh, come in and and uh, would be preying upon their own relatives. So uh, as people started to uh, to uh, pass away in a family one by one. There would be a belief at, at, during this hysteria in New England that, that they were preying upon their own relatives, and it was a, a definite problem. Uh, the Mercy Brown case in Rhode Island is probably the most prominent, and it's very interesting that uh, when Abraham, Sto- when Bram Stoker, uh, translated or died in 1912. Among his papers were found newspaper clippings about the Exeter-Rhode Island case. Hmm. So uh, right now we'll pause for a caller.
1: Yes, and that is
0: Tom Spitaleri on the line with us. Hey, Tom.
2: Hey, Paul. How are we doing? Happy Halloween. Well, um, Happy Halloween.
0: And to you, How my you? friend.
2: Yes, and uh, I just wanted to call. I know you've got a great going on about Mercy Brown. I know very little about her except what the legendary... Well, keep yeah.
0: listening to the, the show. You'll learn more.
2: <laughs> yeah, I will be listening to the show to learn more about Mercy Brown. But, yeah. You know, I read about Mercy Brown through uh, some of the stuff that Tom wrote. I've never listened to him Tom D'Agostino, like
0: yeah, you. right. Yeah. Okay. So um, you've been interested in the uh, Ossipee Triangle in New Hampshire, I right?
2: have been. And guess what? I forgot to tell you. you got family connected to the Ossipy Triangle.
0: Well, that's about right. How did you not know that? I, well, I, I, well, I just I try to know everything, but uh, somebody asked me that. Do you know everything? I said I really don't know.
2: <laughs> so yeah, this family member came through um, Rhode Island to many different parts of Massachusetts through Haverhill. Spent a lot of time in Haverhill down down on Groveland Street, and then went back to uh, Rhode Island. Had to go to Lawrence once because he left his. Attaché case in a trolley car and ended up back in the trolley car. And that, guess who I'm talking about? You
0: talking about Lovecraft.
2: Lovecraft, you got it. Oh, okay. H.P. Lovecraft, the Crawley, the yep. B- Betty and Bonnie Hill are all involved in the Ossipy Triangle. Which,
0: oh my goodness.
2: I mean, if you, let's take the traditional triangle. It's most of Carol Count. So that's Ossipy, uh, Tamworth, Shakora, madison jacksonville jackson new hampshire you know albany new hampshire which if you blink you go right through it right on 16 you just blink and you're gone
0: like rhode island
2: like rhode island right albany you know you're in albany when you see the albany fire station they one uh it's an old fire station it's a one one garage door fire station basically and it's made of wood okay <laughs> and it's a albany fire
0: well, cool.
2: And then you know you're already through Albany. Um, this area has always fascinated me, believe it or not. But in my opinion, and I think we've discussed opinions about triangles plenty of time, you and I. Mm-hmm. Um, when I researched the Ossipy Triangle, we have stuff going all the way to Berlin, New Hampshire, a lot of similarities. So, you know, how okay. far do these triangles really go? When it's all said in well Well, that,
0: that's the thing. Well, we always refer right. to them as research tools, but we're, we're going to, well, that's on our bucket list. We have six other triangles we're working on, uh, but um, we'd like to pursue the Ossipe one uh, with, uh, you know, at some length as, as time goes by. Uh, what else has happened up there?
2: Well, uh, obviously in that area, we've had Bigfoot sightings all over the from Ossipi all the way through White Mountain National Forest. Too many, too numerous uh, to even discuss because we could spend the whole show on that. I have about 15 years' worth of research done, uh, and friends of mine who work for the Park Service and the Rangers up there and everybody else in the local police departments, calling me on a regular basis. Um, But we also got a lake monster up there in West Ossipi, and that's what I really wanted to discuss, lake monsters.
0: yeah. No vampires, lake
2: monster, though. No vampires that I could find, but Lake Monsters. And you know what I find interesting about Lake Monsters? They all came out around the same time, when you, except for, like, our friend and your friend came out a little bit earlier than that. And supposedly there were writings of Lake Monsters up in the Ossipi area and beyond, you know, that dates back to Native American times, right? mm mm-hmm. But when did we really start hearing about Lake Monsters? Early 1900s, late 1800s, right? Early right. 1900s? Yeah. Well, what was going on in the early, late 18, early 1900s? We had the expansion of our country. The Civil War's over. We're back to peace with each other. We all love each other. Everybody's happy with each other. So now we're expanding. Now hotels are opening up all over these tourist areas. Rhode Island. I don't care where they are. Massachusetts. New Hampshire well, what better way to attract somebody than having a lake monster, huh?
0: Well, that's Come true. Come on,
2: take a vacation, and you might catch a lake monster. Um, I've been through the lakes of Ossipee and yet to catch a lake monster. I've seen plenty of artwork of lake monsters. Um, there was one out in West um, Ossipee Lake West, which is off 16. It's more towards Tamworth in that area so mm-hmm. the other side of the lake. And... The first writing about came in a tourist newspaper in the 1920s. You know those. You know how they used to. Well, up until about the 1990s, you used to, be able to pick up tourist papers anywhere you went. Oh yes. Now they don't have them anymore. Those are obsolete, which is cry, which is a crying shame. Um, but yeah, they picked that up. I've also um, heard about a monster up around Madison in the same type of newspaper in the 1940s. Um, so it's interesting that these things pop up, you know, they pop up in tourist
0: areas.
2: Yeah. Lake supposedly has chalky. I, I've only seen one reference to chalky and nothing else. So I've kind of put that in the back burner. You know, those, you get one reference while you're doing your research, you don't throw it away, but you don't really use it. You could maybe back it up with something.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) So I got that one reference there. Um, I've driven these areas, UFO sightings, not just the Benny and Bonnie Hill area, which is very famous thanks to Mike Stevens and his hard work
0: yeah.
2: out there making that marker. But I was coming down many a time from Berlin, New Hampshire, where 16 and 302 meet mm-hmm. near Storyland. Yeah, You see, you should see all the stuff that flies across that area at night, at 10, mm. 11 o'clock at night as I'm driving home.
0: Yeah, interesting.
2: Some of it might be planes. But,
0: well, uh, we'll be we'll be working on that, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be on your show tonight for a little while, right?
2: Yes, you are. Yep, we're gonna be on tonight at, at Lawrence Cable Access TV. You can check that out on our website, Delcat TV. Paul's gonna be on tonight talking about uh, Bridgewater, and uh, maybe even we'll get into a little bit about Mercy Brown, and maybe a few other things.
0: Very good. All okay, right. Tom. Excellent. Uh, how right. are you, and before you go, uh, the, tell us about the uh, how are the plans for the Parafest going in April?
2: Parafest is going great. Tickets. I'm just waiting on one confirmation from one area, then I will announce the ticket pricing. When you have a multitude event like I'm planning in different locations, I want to make sure that everybody that's a non-profit gets some money out of this besides Hilldale. Yep. And I want to make sure the ticket prices are fair because this is a big-time event going from April 10th to April 28th with many different events going on in between that.
0: Yeah, and Kittery Main. So Maine.
2: getting the pricing, Kiddery. you'll be a Kittery remain with
0: us. I uh, love we'll Kittery remain, yes. Yeah,
2: and uh, we'll be kicking oh, the show off. We'll kick the
0: whole event off with you, remember? All right, well, that sounds pretty cool. Now, as far as uh, our charities are concerned, the Hilldale Cemetery is one of the adopted charities on this show. It's on our website. Just to say a few words about that.
2: Hilldale Cemetery is an 1859 graveyard. Um, And when I took it over about 10, 15 years, 10 years, 11 years now, um, it was in disrepair. It was 21 acres of land pretty much, and you could only walk probably about maybe three to four acres if you're lucky. The rest was all overgrown. We regrouped now and reclaimed about 60% of the cemetery, but we still need more funds to do that. And it's also a very haunted cemetery, too.
0: Well, I've You've been there. Men it's, men a yeah. place, it's, uh, it's a beautiful Haverhill, place, and it's in Haverhill, Massachusetts.
2: Yes, right in Haverhill, Massachusetts, and you just missed the fall foliage season. If you're an artist,
0: well, actually, so I was there the a few, like a week ago. So,
2: <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. So you cut the fall foliage, but if there's any artist listing for next year, it's always voted the top two or three spots. Usually, number one, prettiest spot in Haverhill.
0: Excellent. Okay, Tom, that sounds great, and we'll talk to you All tonight. All right,
2: we'll see you tonight. Thanks, Paul, and I'll send you the number in a little bit.
0: Very good. All right? Okay.
2: Thank you. Okay, okay. bye-bye.
0: Bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay, a uh, bit of a break from vampires there. and No vampires in the Hilldale Cemetery that I'm aware
1: of. Yes, that we know of.
0: Yes. Uh So, anyway, uh, the Mercy Brown case in Rhode Island, and I found out about that when I was a reporter uh, for a humble, um, you know, mild-mannered reporter in uh, West Warwick, Rhode Island, in 1979. And they knew, the editor knew I had both been in the seminary and had been working on paranormal stuff for many years already. And he said, come up with a Halloween story. So I kind of went into the local history, and uh, the Mercy Brown case was not unknown. And uh, the media would tend to drag it out at Halloween. Uh, I guess maybe I started that trend in Rhode Island, I don't know. Uh, I, as far as I know, I had been written about in the 1950s, but the story pretty much goes like this. Now, the Browns of Exeter, Rhode Island. Exeter is a very rural place for those who don't live here. And the Browns were not country bumpkins. They were among the founding families of Rhode Island. I mean, Brown University is named after the, their, their people. And so that is the background to this. And, the uh as I, as we mentioned the uh members of the family would often start to die one by one very often by age now ninety five percent chance this was what was known then as consumption or a form of tuberculosis, which would rip through families like like uh it was the covid of its day so the brown family uh the children started to die one by one mercy brown was uh considered to be uh, the vampire because they literally exhumed the bodies and uh, if anybody was uh, seriously decomposed, obviously no home for a vampire ghost in there, but Mercy was found supposedly, this is well attested, including by a doctor, uh, to be perfectly preserved and uh, with blood in her mouth and in, in, in some of the organs, which is not... Usually the case when you have passed away. Now my theory is, and I don't mean to be unnecessarily vivid here, but there were in the old cemeteries, particularly in New England, where it's really cold in the winter, receiving vaults. Now today you see them in a lot of old cemeteries that they're just very much covered up with um, uh, turf, and there's a big door. And you, today they use it usually to store the lawnmowers and stuff. But uh, in the days before heavy equipment, where you could you couldn't dig in, in the ground in the, when the ground is frozen. You had to leave the bodies in the um, uh, receiving vault, and the cold would preserve them. And uh, I think that's what happened with Mercy, uh, because she had uh, recently she had been uh, she had died, but she had been in some of the cold weather in the receiving vault at the Chestnut Hill Cemetery in Exeter, and was buried, and probably nothing had happened really to the body. And so I think that that's one idea. Maybe that's wrong. So everybody says, aha, and uh, again, this is presided over by a doctor. Um, the heart was uh, removed and burned on a rock that can still be seen on this uh, in this little cemetery. The, um, and, he, and here's where we get into some of the most ancient and most bizarre traditions behind the vampire beliefs. That taking into yourself the body or some of the organs, even cannibalism in some cultures, of someone else will help you uh, to survive physically or will help you to take on the good characteristics of the person uh, whose um, essence you are somehow consuming. Because uh, some of the ashes from this uh, burning of this heart were mixed into a potion potion of medicine and, again, by a doctor and given to the younger brother who was very ill. They thought he was going to be the next one. So strangely enough, I mean the guy died anyway, but uh, he'd gone to Colorado in order to uh, get cleaner air. that was part of the plan and again, this is eighteen ninety two i mean that I mean historically that's like yesterday and because um, the media had been growing at the late part of the eighteenth I should say the nineteenth century, uh, this was in the press and as I say, uh, Bram Stoker. Uh, heard about this. I'm, I don't think it gave him the idea for the book Dracula, but I think it gave him some ideas about what to put in the story. And again, the, these clippings were found in his papers. Uh, he was Irish uh, when he uh, died in 1912. So there's a Rhode Island connection to Dracula, uh, one way or the other. This was not the uh, the only. Case this Mercy Brown case that that occurred. There were a number of other cases in uh, Connecticut, particularly Eastern Connecticut and Rhode Island, uh, from the time of the Revolution up to about uh, the end of the 20, uh, the nineteenth century. And uh, one of them uh, came to light in 1991 when a bunch of boys were playing in near Jewett City, Connecticut, by an old quarry, and uh, all of a sudden a skull rolls down the hill and lands at their feet. So naturally they freak and uh, this came to the attention of not only the police but the uh, archaeology people from the University of Connecticut. And they came and uh, the, they realized that, you know, the thing was very, very old. It wasn't like some recent murder victim or anything, So the cops, uh, that satisfied them. And apparently this quarry had been expanding and had uh, overtaken uh, the uh, Walton family Burial ground. Now, New England is full of little family burial grounds. People used to put their relatives uh, somewhere on their property, particularly if it was a farm, and they'd put a uh, fence around it, and that would be the family uh, burial ground. So that was one of these. And uh, when exhumations occurred, I and mean, there was really nothing left, just skeletons, it was found that the, the bodies apparently had been mutilated after death, uh, apparently because by, by vampire hunters. They're the same thing as Mercy Brown. Uh, case, so so this was not just in Exeter, and it was really strange that it uh, somehow uh, spread in New England, and people were doing this uh, for a better part of a century, if not more so i 've always wondered Ben you know where did the, how did these beliefs come to New England from eastern Europe because they 're very much along the eastern oh, European line
1: I think I have a reason
0: oh okay um, i 've been waiting for forty years to hear the reason,
1: so I think. Um, it starts with Giles DeRay. Uh, if, if, if you are not familiar with the name, um, he was right-hand man of Joan of Arc. And, uh, unlike Saint Joan of Arc, this man was not a saint. He was truly a oh, horrible, horrible human. And I think one of sort of, not the origin, but one of, one of the things attributed to the whole vampire hysteria because of his sort of contribution to folklore through his Really, truly horrible actions, which I probably cannot get into on the air. Um, But essentially, we're going to leave it at um, he pursued immortality uh, through the help of an Italian alchemist. Shortly after, um, was it the Hundred Years' War? Uh, Mm. He was incredibly rich. Him and his, his whole family were the richest family in all of France at the time. And his actions were so bad that the Pope at the time called an Inquisition
0: specifically for him. So we're talking about the fourteen hundreds here. Yeah. Right? yeah. Oh yeah,
1: this was like the fourteen hundreds. Yeah. Um, it's really it's real it's really bad. So I won't get into it. But if you ever want to research it, it's um it's it's really it's really something kind of spooky and something that actually happened. And it really left an imprint on what people thought. And I guess the only way to deal with it was this sort of, you know, legend of, of, of vampires and all that stuff hmm. that kind of stuck through Christian mythology and, and is still kind of in, in, the, in, in the, the, the very much in the mythos, if you will.
0: Okay, well, on that uh, cheerful note, let's take our uh, bottom-of-the-hour break here. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM, in New England's beautiful and uh, haunted Blackstone River Valley. And we'll be right back with our ongoing discussion about vampires and other happy things. Stick with us.
2: The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late-night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnye.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal
0: Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. Let's see. Well, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. It's W 1240 AM nine nine five FM in Rhode Island, and we're talking as uh, our Halloween show today. Of course, we're talking about the uh, very weird uh, history and and the beliefs about vampires and the traditions that that go with it.
1: You know, I actually found something interesting. This is a little little related side note. There was actually in eighteen sixty four there was a popular um, Greek Orthodox manual for uh, confession. And it was an 82-page manual. Um, the Greek Orthodox priests would use it, and they would use it for, for you know holy confession. But there were two pages dedicated in it specifically with the title of On Those Who Burn Vampires. Oh, my goodness. Yes. It's, uh, but the, the Greek word, um, if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, someone please tell me, um, vrykolakos. And that that would be the, the Greek word for, for vampires. And uh essentially it was it's basically if if you burn if you burn a vampire and if you you get in enveloped in any of the smoke, you can't receive communion for at least six years. It's <laughs>
0: they didn't teach us that in the seminary.
1: Well this yeah, you no, know, you know, hey, you know, you weren't you weren't in a Greek seminary, that's probably why. Well, all right. Um but there's actually a really there's a We had in, Greek students. There's, I'm, or maybe they just stopped teaching it altogether, <laughs> right. I don't know. But there's a really interesting thing because the characteristics that they point out are, are very different than the vampires of, you know, wearing capes and, you know, <laughs> kind yeah, of stuff. Right. Essentially, they would wander around in the night, they would prophesy to people, they'd destroy people's property. They'd like you know they they do all sorts of really weird things, so like you know they would wander around and beat up people like you know they'd, and that's and they so like
0: wandering gangs
1: yeah basically and they uh. they'd do it at night and that was like their thing, and it was always um you know so they they'd yeah you know, that's that's what they'd do and maybe maybe eat a little bit of
0: flesh here and there,
1: but that's yeah, that those were the Greek characteristics for vampires back in the late eighteen hundreds
0: well the, the, let's get a little deeper into some of the uh the, the beliefs. Now, not only do you have the, the consuming of blood, but uh, the people, are, you know, which is really horrible, and the cannibalism, which is even probably worse. There are long-standing traditions about consuming others in a sense of one form or another. Uh, one of the better ones, as far as when it comes to characteristics, uh, trying to take into yourself the good characteristics, uh, would be. Uh, organ transplants. Mm. Now, obviously, that's real. It's done today, and it's a very noble thing to do. I'm an organ donor, um, and uh, with given what I'm about to say, anybody who inherits my liver or something is going to have an interesting experience. Organ recipients. And we did. We did a good show on this with Marcus Loth a few oh, years ago. Yes, we did. Yes, where people will receive organs uh, from donors, you know, who are living or no longer with us, and sometimes, not all the time, sometimes will begin to have some of the same characteristics as the person whose organs they've received. Uh, they develop a taste for, you know, tuna fish, say, uh, when they themselves could never stand it before, uh, or, um, you know, then the, the, the donor was a tuna nut. Uh, or they develop some of the um, likes and dislikes, of the characteristics, uh, they know things they didn't know before that were known by the donor, and, again, this isn't, isn't all the time, but it, it is relatively frequent. So th- I, we find that that's kind of an interesting uh, side note to this whole thing. Uh, the consumption of blood and other things uh, is, um, I mean, what do we do? We receive blood transfusions from other people. You know, it's all, this is all part of uh, medical uh, life in the modern world. St- stem cell research. I mean, things are developed from that that supposedly help people and certainly apparently do. So there's a long tradition of this. When you look at um, some of the Christian traditions, now there was a big row during the the so-called Reformation in Europe when uh, the Protestants said, well, it's not really the body and blood of Christ that you receive at the uh, liturgy at Mass. Uh, Roman Catholics to this day uh, insist that it is. Uh, So did the Orthodox, as a matter of fact. And if you look at the sixth chapter... Of the Gospel of John, there's a passage. It's not all that well known. I think I don't hear about it very much. But Christ has just fed the five thousand people, and they gathered what was left up in the baskets. And they had been saying, Christ had said, "Well, you know, here's, here's the food we just ate, but my f- my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink." And he and I read it in Greek. And it says this, pretty much the same thing. He goes on and on, insisting that it's real. It's not not a symbol. And a lot of... It says that some of the disciples... Because the apostles are not the same thing as the disciples. There were three or 400 disciples and 12 apostles. But the apostles... The, the, some of the disciples couldn't deal with that, and, and they, they left. They said, it's too crazy. So if that's an accurate rendition of what he actually said, and that's always up for grabs, so to speak then here's, again, the notion of uh, the blood being taken in by someone else as a very intimate and holy experience in the best sense of, of the experience. Now, I was astonished. I don't know if you've seen this, Ben, but on Netflix, they, ha- they had a series called Midnight Mass.
1: Oh, yeah, I've, I haven't seen it, though.
0: Well, I, I actually I don't have time to watch that, I just don't. But this seems very interesting because you know, having almost become a priest myself, I started to watch it, and I said, boy, th- this, is, this is somebody who knows Roman Catholic liturgical practice. It was very accurate, mm-hmm. and I really appreciate that in films. That's, that's me.
1: Authenticity.
0: Authenticity. And uh, But there's a rather mysterious and very dedicated and apparently good-hearted priest who shows up on this island... Somewhere. I don't want to ruin this for anybody who hasn't seen it. But uh, suffice it to say, it becomes a vampire story. Ooh, cool. I was hoping Mothman. Because the thing starts swooping over the island. And uh, again, I don't, want, I don't want to be a spoiler. Hey,
1: down. you know, there could be a season two where it's Mothman.
0: But it, effectively, they take the whole Christian uh, doctrine on the Eucharist and turn it into a vampire thing. Which is, I found very, you know, It was. you know, I think it was too... Dumb to really offend believers, but at the same time, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, the uh, the uh, atmosphere they develop and the characterization is really, uh re- I think, very well done. There's yes, even I mean, a crazy church lady. Of course, and there's always one of those, yes. you know. And yeah. <laughs> and of course, in the end, uh, everybody is uh, the, the the actual vampire started, the one that actually shows up fully vested for mass, and I mean, it's really very original. I think. But at the same time it shows the this underlying human thing for blood and for maintaining the life. And you I think you have a sort of a three pronged uh, thing here that maybe started the people's fascination with the vampire legends as well or feeds it. One is paleo science. I call it paleoscience. Uh, possibly prehistoric science that knew some of the things we've talked about tonight. That there are health benefits to uh, transplants and things of this kind, because of, these things—there's I mean, evidence of, of uh, root canal w- dental work being done about nine thousand years ago in Syria. These things are all um, not well known, but, but they're archaeological facts. The, everything, you know, Ben. We often say that, uh, oh, who could have built the pyramids but aliens? You know, like they're going to fly a zillion light years to build stuff out of rocks. You know, and our own ancestors were too, too dumb to do it ourselves. And that's not the case. Uh, and if you look at history as being what we say cyclical instead of linear, in other words, we've gone, as we say, from power tool from uh, stone tools to power tools, three or four times as some of the First Nations, uh, particularly the Hopi I believe, and mm. other indigenous cultures too. That that we we kind of go around, you know, something will happen, like maybe an asteroid or something, or a terrible war, or something, a natural disaster, and we have to start all over again. And we carry those traditions with us. So maybe the paleo science of the time would have been that you can get benefits from, you know, using the blood of other people to help uh, someone who's ill, or this sort of thing, and that could very easily have been translated into uh, vampirism, I suppose. Uh, the second thing, would be certainly just our, our basic fascination with life and uh, desire to avoid death. There's a fascination with immortality. I mean, that's uh, the the uh, premise of many most religions and this sort of thing is surviving death. So that's the second prong. The third prong would be, uh, I, uh, I'm not going to say ancient aliens, but uh, parasites, parasite activity. And I've written about this a bunch of times. Parasite activity in the early um, uh, ancestry of the human race, even, maybe even the beginning. And what are parasites? Uh, we're always talking about them. You know, folklore calls them demons. Uh, there's this name and that name. i run into them. Ben's run into them. And what we deal with here is life-sucking ghosts, mm. essentially, as the Sumerians would say. But they're not ghosts in the sense of dead people. I don't think there are any dead people. Uh, they apparently are physical. I've had physical confrontations with them. So, they seem bird-like. I said that in the beginning. Uh, most of the characteristics of the Sumerian gods, same thing, parasites. So I think that that's the third prong, is that uh, it's very easy to translate a, a life-sucking parasite. We, we've run into people with chronic fatigue syndrome after dealing, dealing with these things, and they farm people and they eat the energy. That's literally what seems to be happening. So you can very easily see that translated into the into the uh, vampire thing of of legend and and literature.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in a fourth prong here. Um, hmm. There's a there's a really interesting theme in a lot of um, mythologies, uh, and one of the major ones is usually um, civilization versus the wilderness or, more accurately, order versus chaos. Hmm. And you can see that in a lot of social structures, right? You you have, you know, your your center. Um, think of it like a circle, right? So you have you have sort of the center of the circle being some sort of form or, of order, right? So let's, uh, I don't know, for lack of better words, let's just throw, you know, a lowercase g, god, in there. And then expanding outwards, you have various levels of society, right? So let's look at Rome, right? And Rome, you know, during the, the imperial, you know, age you know you had the emperor in the center with the various gods and stuff that all kind of were there and then you expanded outward you had the patricians at the top you had the plebs at the bottom and then as you expanded further outward for, away from citizenship you had the barbarians or a really interesting thing that you know not just the romans would call but the greeks would call um dog-headed people and um you know all these other weird things that would exist and it wasn't necessarily it was a derogatory term but it also was, was al- almost meant quite literally. And there's even traditions, um, a very interesting, you know, if for those of you of the, the um, Catholic or Orthodox persuasion, there's St. Christopher, which if you've ever seen an icon or depiction of him, he has a dog head, the head of a dog, because he's from one of these tribes of, of dog headed people. And it's um, it's it's interesting because he lives on the outside of of civilization. So there's this this theme of on the outside you have monsters. Monsters exist outside of of this circle, right? A very another in, interpretation would be you know like the Nor- like the Norse gods, right? You know they they had the whole all right. So you know you had Midgard and you have a whole bunch of other worlds and stuff, the nine other realms um, that were all sort of layered on top of Midgard. But around it, there were wall, like, you know, ba- a literal wall of, or mountains that, that basically separated everything that wasn't, you know, in order outside of it, right? Which would be the giants, which you also have with Greek mythology with the Gigantomachy or the, the War of the Giants. Yeah. it's So it's, they're just, they're all out, they're all out there. They're, 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 all the monsters exist on the outskirts, on the outside yeah. of civilization so when something represents chaos right i e you know someone you know drinking you know blood right you know that's that's something that's that's chaotic that's that's a monster that's outside of of our of our center and we we need order we need structure we need something that that orders the world around us and something that represents you know the the sort of opposite of that is scary inherently right You know, it's why, it's why, you know, we, we, we demonize people, right? Why do we use the word demonize? (laughs) Yeah. Because it's... Well, people
0: can be vampires too.
1: Right. So that's... Psychic vampires. That's, yeah, that's another definition I've, I've even seen in in my, my personal research where it's like, you know, someone who's doing bad things is a vampire. Mm. Or, you know, (laughs) loosely translated. It's, it's when, when we, we act on chaos and take on chaos, we effectively turn ourselves into monsters. And so mm. when we we step outside the order, we step outside into chaos, we exist on the on the outskirts of it. Then it's monsters exist on the outside. You know, it's like if you look back at old tales of of, you know, front like people on the frontier, they're going out, they're seeing all these crazy things on the outside of civilization. Yeah, you could just say they're they're dumb. <laughs> they're dumb Europeans who are just, you know, scared of their own shadows. But I think that there's something, too. There's something that's just on the outside. You know, something unknown, something, you know, scary, some sort of monster or something that represents chaos that exists out there. If it's not in the order, it's chaos. You know yeah, what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Very astute. Uh, there were a couple of listener questions I wanted to get to, but just uh, by way of um, uh, something our, our local audience would be very interested in. Uh, the town of Cumberland, Ben's native town, mm. uh, is just south of here. And uh, I was, uh, for a couple of years, the editor of the local weekly newspaper there, the Observer, Lincoln-Cumberland Observer, and uh, the precursor to the current Valley Breeze. But it was 1983, I was in the town records vault at Cumberland Town Hall, looking for something entirely different, when I happened to see uh, something that happened in 1796. A vampire case, apparently, in, in Cumberland. And on February 8th of that year, Stephen Staples, now the, there are still Staples dependents in Cumberland, uh, descendants in Cumberland, descendants in Cumberland, I knew some of them at the time, uh, they were amazed when they <laughs> heard that I found out about this. Uh, Stephen petitioned, pet, petitioned the town council for permission to exhume the body of his daughter Abigail, who was 23 years old and had died young. I uh, said she was rising, rising from the grave each night to drain the lives of her eight brothers and sisters. Uh, from uh, volume four, if, any, if anybody is interested, volume four, page one of the town council records, quote, Mr. Stephen Staples of Cumberland appeared before this body, like the way they put that, mm. and prayed that he might have the liberty granted unto him to dig up the body of his daughter, Abigail, Abigail Staples, the of Cumberland, a single woman deceased, in order to, quote, try and experiment on Levina Chase. Now, apparently, Levina Chase was a married daughter of Mr. Staples, and uh, they believed that uh, Abigail had been uh, messing around here as a vampire thing and uh, that uh, Levina's health was suffering. Uh, The town council readily granted this. Apparently, everybody bought this, and uh, he did, but I've never been able to find out what the result would be. And uh, and when the Staples uh, people I knew in Cumberland said, how did you find out about that? It's not something they usually talk about in their family tree. Right, yeah. So I said, it's in the town council records. So on that note, uh, and this is in 1796, uh, take it it or leave it. uh, We have a question from Stephen in Florida. Yes,
1: so Stephen writes to us. Uh, do you find as a researcher that Halloween is a thinner and therefore more active time for paranormal activity, or is this merely just another day in the calendar that those in alternate dimensions don't recognize as particularly worth excitement, Stephen?
0: Okay, well, good question. A bunch of levels to Oh, that. he's from Central Texas now. He moved. Oh, did he? He moved. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, oh, so well, right.
1: welcome to Texas.
0: Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm behind on Stephen's uh, schedule here. Well, there are, as I said, a number of levels to this. Uh, the term thinner might be taken from uh, First Nations term, a thin place, where the worlds uh, apparently are close to one another and the veils between them are thin. In our terms, it might be a place of intersect, overwash, or overlap of parallel realities of the sense of quantum physics, which we specialize in as researchers of flap areas, as we call them. We had to invent a whole new vocabulary just to talk about that. So uh, the thing with this day in the year, uh, in this part of the world, you know, if you go around the the, uh, north of the equator and uh, south of the Arctic Circle, uh, you have winter, okay? And this, particularly in Europe, was known as a time of, of death people would not survive the winter as readily as they would survive the summer. So the first day of the Celtic New Year would be November 1st. And as a matter of fact, even even the Wiccans today will celebrate this as Beltane. Am I got, does I have the right season there, Beltane?
1: That sounds about right.
0: Yeah. uh, Coming in and um, that would be just, again, descending from the Celtic tradition. Uh, We always say, Happy Halloween, well how do you do that? Well in the ancient sense you do that by not dying on Halloween. So uh in that sense and of course in Mexico everybody knows the Day of the Dead and they everybody's running around with uh you know uh skeletons and it's actually a very positive thing they uh, will visit the cemeteries and uh yeah I think that, that's really good you you have to remember your blood. So in any case I think I don't think it's any thinner than any other time but in the sense that people are more aware of it. That has a factor in paranormal events. People, uh, if we're running around, you know, as we have our crazy lives all the time, we're not paying attention to nature, never mind anything else, uh, we're going to miss a lot of things. Whereas if we live lives of uh, quiet and meditation, we might have more mystical experiences. So, uh, so the answer is kind of yes and no. Let's see if we can uh, work in one from Peter here. Sure. Okay.
1: Uh, so Peter writes to us, could the phenomena of alleged alien abductions be a form of vampirism? If so, how might that work?
0: That's another very astute question. Uh, we often say, we've said it earlier in this show, that you, you end up with uh, putting labels on things that happen in the human experience, labels that we can understand, uh, demons, ghosts, things of this kind, whereas the actual reality may be far deeper. We, uh, are always saying that when you have experiences, uh, it depends on the context as well. If you're outdoors and you see a light in the sky and, uh, some kind of wispy figure on the ground, aha, probably an alien and a UFO. But if you're in your house and you see something similar a ball of light or aha, a ghost. It could be, uh, could be correct. It could be neither. It could be something we can't even conceive of. So, It is possible that uh, with the uh, reports of experiments, uh, physical and medical experiments that are done uh, last week uh, on on our simulcast with the uh, Danbury Connected Library and the Western Connecticut UFO Conference, we had Kathleen Marden as our guest, uh, and she is the the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, the first uh, couple, 1961, who had an abduction experience that was publicized all over the world. First time that had really happened. There were medical experiments involved. Uh, you could argue, uh, I don't know, if the, the, there are puncture wounds very often seen in these cases. Uh, Whether blood is extracted, I'm not entirely sure, but implants sometimes are made, and the, these implants have been, I've never seen one, but I, I, I know people who have seen them uh, extracted from people. So it's very possible that uh, part of the vampire lore may have been created by, whatever the ancestors or or the precursors in our labels were for alien abduction. Now, the fairies and uh, various uh, kinds of demons and everything would come and take people, the um, changeling phenomenon with children and all this sort of thing. Uh, I think that that many of these paranormal events are as plain as a nose on your face. totally obvious, but because of the labels, we don't really see them.
1: I think it's important to note that... um you know, all, all of these these things are, are subjective experiences of an objective reality. We know something's happening, right? We we know that there's there's something that happened to someone, but there but the the explanation is through a subjective experience. So it's it's very hard to say, okay, well we know what this is, and say, boom, this is it, which is you know it's mind boggling for for our our very modern minds is you know we we want to have a word to say this is what this is and reduce reality to just words which is you know it's it's just it's just not good enough right oh
0: we have we have a uh, thank you thanks to uh charlie from oregon who corrects us on the uh the um celtic season it it's it's hand? it's sewing. soin. I believe it's pronounced sewing, Yeah. Oh, and, Bel- uh,
1: Beltane Spring, I think. Right? Beltane
0: is precisely May first. Oh, That's okay. right. All Thank right. you very much, Charlie. You have saved our bacon on that one.
1: Yes, yes. Should so be keeping
0: our integrity. <laughs> yes, indeed. I you know, I hate to say <laughs> things. I hate to speculate on the air.
1: Well, I mean, we weren't quite
0: wrong. It was one of the. <laughs> well, it was, okay, well, it was, we had a, it was one, one of chance one chance in four to get the right. solstices. <laughs> very good. Okay, so chance. right, exactly. Okay, um, well, there we have the vampire topic. Uh, The only other thing I might say, again, uh, is that um, there were a number of other cases in Rhode Island we didn't have a chance to get to. One of the, uh, not only Bram Stoker, uh, tied into apparently the Mercy Brown case for his story Dracula, but H.P. Lovecraft, who came up on the show in our call with uh, Mm. Tom Spitaleri, is a a distant cousin of ours, uh, his story, The Shunned House of 1924, really the only vampire story he ever wrote, Lovecraft being a great, um, sort of the Edgar Allan Poe of the 20th century and a uh, favorite son in Rhode Island here uh, from Providence, uh, really wrote a lot of totally different kinds of horror fantasy stories. But the closest he got to a vampire story is called The Shunned House, which is an actual house on Benford Street in Providence. And... Um, he um, tied into the Mercy Brown story for that. As a matter of fact, he quotes from uh, newspaper accounts of it. Uh, and he said that the, the Mercy should have, uh, uh, that the person in the house should not have hired anyone from the News Hill country, which is where Exeter is. New Hill, very cheerful. Now, I lived there while I was a reporter for the Times in West Warwick. And... <laughs> lovely austere country very kind of spooky but very pleasant to live in i thought uh but anyway that's uh in the fiction of lovecraft even the mercy brown case features mm. so let's uh leave that uh, subject for now yes. and uh, get on to our uh, announcements if you would ben uh, if you're
1: sure thing yeah. so on november 19th uh, as part of the gallery lecture series at the pine bush ufo and paranormal museum in crawford new york my dad or both of us if uh if i have the ability to will present an in-person program on behind the paranormal everything you know is wrong that's at 8 p.m and uh, we'll have more details next week and we'll also be at the new england parafest in kittery maine which runs from april 10th to the 26th that's in 2022 Wow, it's going to be a long event. Jeez.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I should have asked him more about that. When we had him on the phone today. But.
1: Well, you know, it's it's pretty far away. At least you know we can work out yeah, the right, details right. and stuff. But that's that's an ambitious conference, and I'm excited to be a part of it. And uh, not just sure yet when we'll be on the schedule, but we do plan to do a live broadcast from there as well.
0: Well, apparently we're going to open it as we did the uh, Western Connecticut UFO conference with a live broadcast on the Sunday uh, that starts the uh, event. So we'll uh, look forward to that. Uh, and to certainly point out that after years of tech problems, all regular recorded radio broadcasts of Behind the Paranormal from CBS, Achieve Radio and here on W O O N A M and FM have been restored in the archives at BehindTheParanormal.com. Now, there there are up to and more than a 1,000 hours of broadcasts there. So if you're a long-haul trucker or completely retired with nothing to do, you're all in luck. Otherwise, uh, have at it and see, do the best you can. Uh, we also uh, fully restored the Return to Rendlesham series from 2010 uh, to 2011 on CBS and all related shows, along with the Achieve Radio monthly two-hour specials from 2009.
1: So. And you can check out uh, our our books, That's along with those of our guest co-hosts at our, our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com. You can also find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us. Uh, along with our 900 plus free, sh- free shows, just as mentioned, our uh, recorded shows as well, and now restored by my dad. All that good stuff.
0: Right. And uh, check out our app. Uh, on the Behind the Paranormal website, you can uh, download the link to that. It's not in the stores yet, the app stores, because that's very complicated. And we haven't had time. Through, yeah. Oh, yeah. so uh, you, But you can download it, and, and it works, and you can uh, get all the uh, latest episodes, things of that kind. And again, check out our charity page on the website, and um, including the uh, Hope for H- the uh, Hildale Cemetery in uh, Haverhill Mass that we uh, talked about in our conversation with Tom Spitaleri today, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection, and a couple of veterans' charities. And uh, what do we have next week, then?
1: So, on the shelf, uh, that's November 7th, we'll be doing a full open line show with our cousin, uh, Rick Eno, special guest co-host and MUFON investigator. And he's coming from to us <laughs> via phone from uh, all the way out in California.
0: So, uh, we leave you today with a pithy thought attributed to, of all people, St. Jerome, who didn't speak English. So, this must have been written in Latin or Greek. Good, better, best, never let it rest until your good is better and your better is best i i, I go I gotta look that up. <laughs> Bonus I melior mean, optimus. De-
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe it didn't come out rhyming in Latin, but in English it did. Yeah. Who knows?
0: Numquam sit requires donac bonum tuum est melius et melius tuum est optimum. It's mm. pretty much the translation. Anyway, I'm Paul Eno.
1: I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Return the Return to this radio frequency 167